Hey, everybody. If you've got a Bible, go ahead and turn it to 1 Corinthians chapter 9, which I think is 1781 page number-wise. And the pew Bible's there if you need to get one. And I'm going to read verses 19 on. Um, so I was on vacation for two weeks before this, and including the week right before this. So I didn't do any work on this sermon, so this is just off the top of my head, okay? Um, because I'm not preparing a sermon for you while I'm on vacation, okay? It's not literally off the top of my head. But, um, so, uh, but it, one, here's the good news. I didn't think about you guys but three times in, for two weeks, um, which is great. Um, I, I just, at some point I remembered I lived in Wisconsin, and um, it's, I, the, I had this great feeling of h- how bad I wanted to still be at my old church and still wanted to come home, which is the feeling you want to have. You don't want to have a feeling that your old church fell apart and it's just you're so glad you're not there, but you want to come home. And you don't want the feeling where you wish you were at your old church, but you don't want to come home. You know, the one you want is, man, they're doing exciting things. We're doing exciting things. And I wish I was still there and I want to go home and I wish I, could be, I wish I could commute or something and be in both places. And it was really cool. They, um, they bought an athletic club like Kiva. They just bought one. Instead of building onto their church, they like bought this athletic club across the street from a high school. I mean, it was just, and they've converted, they have a worship center there now, and their, your, their youth group went from 80 to over 300 in three weeks. Yeah. So, pr- apparently not, not for all the right reasons, but, um, but it was still great. I mean, just really, and a lot, a bunch of them, un, really unchurched kids. It was just really neat to see them take that step, because they were, we were so committed to building this other big building on our church and building the empire, and then they just did something really out of the box, and it's been really neat to see how, thing, how that church has changed. Um, lots of people worshiping in the old skate park in that building, and it's just really neat. So, um, and while I was there, they were having Youth Week, which is like their big youth thing. They do something every day. And the speaker that they had got was a guy from Trinity, Ryan Harding, who interned at Lynn Haven Methodist and interned here my first month. And that he had brought a musician with him from Trinity named Vince Pieri, who was a freshman in Christ Church Lake Forest Youth Group when I youth pastored there, who is now doing a, a, a degree in theology at Trinity. So it was, a re- it was really cool to see that. Um, and, and then have, like, we, I had, Tina was there, one of our interns from here. It was, like, multiple generations of ministry, and it was really cool for me to see all that. It was really encouraging. So, there it is. So, let's read this and, and get at it. So, we start in verse 19. Though I am free and belong to no man, I make myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I become like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I become like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I become like one not having the law. Though I'm not free from God's law, but I'm under Christ's law, so as to win those not having the law. To the weak, I become weak to win the weak. I have become all things to all men, so that by all means possible, I might save some. I do this for the sake of the gospel that I may share in its blessings. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like a man running aimlessly. I do not fight like a man beating the air. 
No, I beat my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. Um, One of the things that um, I got to do this week was one of my favorite things in the world to do, and that is to go offshore fishing. And so I took my four-year-old son, who's just about to be five, and Tina Richardson, one of our interns who was with our family on that trip, and my friend Mark Johnson, and we went out offshore fishing. Um, we caught a place between thunderstorms, and we just got out there 15 miles. And um, one of the things that, that people just blindly believe is that dolphins are inherently lovable creatures. Everybody loves dolphins. There's almost nobody that doesn't love dolphins. In, in some places, you're better off killing a person than a dolphin in terms of repercussions from the mob. And, and I, I'm all for that. I'm a dolphin lover. But loving dolphins is slightly relative because there is one point— in human life, where dolphins are the most hateable creatures you could possibly imagine. And that is when you are trying to reel a fish up from 100 feet and they keep taking them. <laughs> Get the fish, you're reeling it up, and then all of a sudden, and there's nothing. And you reel it up and there are a pair of lips on your hook. <laughs> and that's it. And, you re- and, it just, and they will take 100 fish. They're not like sharks. Sharks will cut off three or four, and if more show up, you're in trouble, but pretty much they get, they get full. Dolphins will just keep eating, and you'll never hook them. You'll never hook a dolphin. It's impossible. And um, it got so bad. We're, we're at this fishing. We're trying to release fish up, and it's, it's only happening to me. And they, they'll keep surfacing and look, hey, guys, go down and take your thing. And finally, we had caught, we'd caught bait, like, near shore before that. We had these, like— these like jacks this big. I'm not talking about little people. This is a kind of fish, okay? And we had a bunch of these about, you know, two pound jacks. And finally, I was like, you know what I'm gonna do? So I got my, my gear ready, right? My, my bait is on. I've got this weight. I'm ready to go. And I grab one of these jacks that's like half frozen, and I throw the thing as far as I can, right? Just like, I tried to, I figured if I can get that thing 50 yards, because, I mean, I don't know if you've been to SeaWorld, but it's, I mean, it's just not fair fighting with a dolphin, right? I mean, you go to see, well, they blindfold them, right? Have you seen this? They blindfold the dolphin, they throw a golf ball out there, and it goes out there blind, gets the golf ball, brings it back, right? So I figure, if I throw a fish out there, like 50 yards, he's going to go find it, and then I'm going to have an opening, right? So I, I tried to get to come to the boat so I could blindfold it, but that didn't work. So <laughs> I just threw the thing as far as I could, and then I dropped my thing right when I did that. And like, it was, it was so harrowing because like, I could feel my weight hit the bottom right when the dolphin was like, took, the, I'm like, oh no, because I know it's going to turn around. And then I felt the fish and I'm like, how fast can you do 80 feet at 3-1 gear ratio, you know? And, and my buddy that is, who's, who's captain of the boat, he's, he's like, it's coming, it's coming, I see it. And so the fish comes flying over, almost knocks my son out of the boat, you know, and lands in the, and the, the, the dolphin comes up next to the boat, you know, and, and I was like, The fish I caught also this big, but it was the tasty kind, you know? And it was just one of those situations where, like, life is just full of obstacles. It's just like, you're trying to do something? It's not hard to catch a fish. Bottom fishing. You just put a dead piece of squid on there, and the fish will chomp it. But there's—it's getting it up that's the problem. It's the barracudas and the sharks and the dolphins that you want to love, but you just hate. And— and you've got, you've got to figure out a way to get past these objects somehow, right? And one of the things that this passage is about is that one of the things you've got to recognize, if you believe in the value of the gospel and you believe that what people really need is the gospel, 
is that you spend nine-tenths of your time not explaining the gospel to people, but removing hindrances. Almost all the sacrifices that, we, that we, we're called to make in ministry, almost all of them are to remove some kind of hindrance, some kind of obstacle, something that's keeping people from wanting to believe in and trust in Jesus. Actually explaining the basic facts of God being God, us being us, valuable and depraved, Jesus dying for our sins and to draw us to God and to fulfill a redemption story and for us to trust in that and live in it, is, look, we're done. That was, what, 11 seconds. The rest of our lives we spent sorting out the problems people have with that. Right? Um, And the thing is, is that Two weeks, two or three weeks ago, I guess now, I said the first eight, chapter eight and the first half of chapter nine was all about doing nothing to hinder the gospel, and that this week would be about do everything to advance the gospel, and that's true. Chapter eight and the first half of chapter nine were do do nothing to hinder the gospel. This do everything to advance the gospel. But one of the things that you'll notice from this half of this chapter is all of the things he talks about to advance the gospel are removing hindrances. Do you notice that? All the advancing is removing the hindrances. And the reason for that is those first, chapter eight and the first half of chapter nine was all about hindrances that you don't add to the problem, right? He's basically saying, listen, let's us not add any more hindrances by what we do. And that that's loving. He, He basically argued that's loving. Let's you and I not do anything else to further hinder people's ability to see and savor and believe in the gospel. But you see what he's saying now is, He's saying, yeah, but here's the thing. Um, There are hundreds and hundreds of other hindrances that you didn't create that still exist. But they're just as hindering. They will keep people from seeing and believing in Jesus, from from missing everything that he has, from, from missing their true purpose in life, for being part of the community of faith that he creates and the redemption that he's bringing to a final end. And the fact is, is that um, that work of removing hindrances is ours to do. And love dictates it. Just like love dictates for you not to create any more hindrances, if you believe in the worth of the gospel, love dictates that you actually work to remove the hindrances other people have put in the way. And some of those are hindrances the church has done, like other Christians have done. And some of them are philosophical hindrances that people have thought up. And some of them, frankly, are hindrances that people have just made up. Right? I mean, if you think about um, what keeps people from believing— there's a lot of different categories, right? I mean, there's people's personal experiences like I, my dad was a super fundamentalist hypocrite and now I hate religion, right? That, that's real. That's a personal experience. But then other people have like philosophical thoughts, right? If God is all loving and all powerful and there's suffering in the world, how can that be, right? And then there are other things that are just misconceptions or misinformation. For example, um, if, if you talk to people who go to your average um, secularly driven campus um, and you tell them that the church did an enormous amount in the Middle Ages to stop witch burning and didn't start it, they won't believe you, right? Everybody knows that one of the things that makes the church so stupid, ignorant, and, um, and anti-scientific is because they were so superstitious they burned witches in Western Europe, maybe 100,000 of them, right? Everybody knows that, except that's not true. David Hart— um, in his book, Atheist Delusions, has a, has a really good chapter on this where he talks about um, the historical numbers of witch burnings before, before Europe was Christianized. Um, burning witches was a European practice that was created by pagan Europeans because it was the only thing they could do to witches. 
They didn't believe they had any kind of spiritual power to fight the occultic power of witches. And so if they found a witch, they really believed that the witches could hex their crops and make their, their cows not calve and all that. So you, you burn them. Like, there's no other Bible that says you burn, you burn witches and drown them. The, you, pagan Europeans came up with that. And there's lots of documents that Hart brings out in the documents of the church, particularly in what we call the Spanish Inquisition. That's that horrible, terrible thing that kills everybody. He brings out all these documents within the documentation of the Spanish Inquisition where there were all these bulls that came from Rome that said, witches can't do anything. They don't have the ability to do that stuff. It's superstition. Teach the people that's not true. Don't burn anybody in these situations. And the number of people that were killed w- w- was less and less and less until it went away under Christendom in Europe. But nobody knows that, right? Why does nobody know that? Because there is a cultural narrative that we all believe in that's part of the culture that we've been part of since we were a little kid. And so it doesn't matter if that's true or false. You can say it and no one will believe you. Because all of us have misconceptions and ignorances that we believe in because we can't verify everything. We don't know everything. And so there are things called plausibility structures, right? There, we've got structures of thinking in our heads that we find some things plausible and other things not plausible. It doesn't matter if they're true or false. There's some things we will naturally easily believe and other things we will not believe even if they're true. Unless a, there's a very long process of researching them, Right? And all of those things stand in the way. All of those things make it hard for people to believe. And most of those hindrances aren't going to go away on their own. They're not just going to up and disappear. Something's got to be done about them. And for the most part, what has to be done about them cannot be done simply verbally. Right? Preachers are great, right, if you can make a living at it. But the problem is, words don't cut it. The, the removal of those hindrances in most cases is going to have to be at least partially embodied. You're going to have to be the thing. So, for example, one of the reasons lots of secular people don't want to become Christians is because they're terrified to become Christians because they're terrified of what they'll become. Because they've met too many Christian idiots, in their view. Which may be accurate, may not be accurate. So what do they need? Do they need me telling them that you can become a Christian, you could be humble and thoughtful and intelligent and scientific and all those things and be a Christian? There's lots of Christians that are that. But Christianity should be like that. They're not going to believe me, though, are they? They're going to have to meet some people who are that. Right? Every non-Christian who considers being a Christian is almost every one of them is going to have somebody that they realize if they were to become more like that person after they believe in Jesus, that wouldn't be the end of the world. They have to know a Christian who they don't think of as anti-gay. They, they have to know a Christian who they don't think of as in the bag for the Republicans, right? Or, in, or the Democrats. They've got to be able to think of a Christian that's not sort of like a anti-science fundy who like if you want to, you know, you get a master's degree, you must hate Jesus. Like they've got to, they've got to know people who aren't the stereotypes they were taught to believe in. Adam and I were talking about his, um, he took Greek for six weeks because it's a prereq to get into Trinity where he's going to be doing his graduate work. And so he went to a seminary in San Francisco that's not known for its strictly orthodox theology. Let's just leave it at that. And he had a number of conversations both in the seminary and out of the seminary at UC Davis and some other places with people in their 20s. And he said in all these conversations, every single conversation with somebody in their 20s in California that turned to anything seriously spiritual— Within the first three minutes, the issue of whether or not he was anti-gay came up. That fast. Right? Why? Because within the plausibility structures of 20-something Californians, that is the moral marker of whether or not you're a good person. Whether or not you're a moral monster. And so it doesn't matter what arguments you can make for Christianity. If you're anti-gay, 
then I, the idea is I can't consider what you're saying because I will not let you snooker me, in, me into becoming a moral monster. So it's out. You see, it's a plausibility structure thing. And so you've got to be able to talk in such a way as to demonstrate you— how your beliefs interact, and that's the same thing with science. It's the same thing with all kinds of things. You go to a bunch of places at UW, you better be able to explain how Christianity is an anti-science. Right? You better be able to explain a lot of things about church history. You better be able to explain stuff, because if not, there's no possibility for them psychologically being able to open themselves up to giving you hearing. Why? Because there's all these hindrances, and the hindrances can't just be overcome philosophically. I would love to spend all my time reading philosophical books and talking for hours, but it's ineffective unless thousands of Christians embody the opposite of the hindrance. You see? And so, if we're going to do everything to advance the gospel, we've got to recognize that a huge part of that is going to be removing hindrances from others, because until those hindrances are taken away, people can't become what they were meant to be, and they can't give the gospel hearing, and they can't take Jesus seriously, right? Um, Think about sports psychologists, right? Why do we need sports psychologists? They don't make people stronger, or faster, or quicker, or even smarter, right? So why, why are they like the rage in college and professional athletics? And here's why. Because so many great athletes can't get out of their own way. If you can't get a kid out of his own head, he's not going to make 60% of the three-pointers he shoots, even if he's open. Even if in practice he can make 100% of them. Because he's in his own head. And until you fix that, that obstacle, he can't be what he was meant to be. And in, in that sense, that's what Christian ministry is all about. And the kind of ministry I'm talking about cannot be done by pastors. Simply numerically. It's like trying to fight a war with just lieutenants. It's not going to work. You need thousands of people being what I'm saying. I mean, think about it. When the whole Roman Empire thought that Christians were incestuous cannibals that ate children, that's what they were all being taught. You think you're being slandered today? First and second century Christians, it was being said that they were incestuous and that they ate babies at their church services. Besides the fact that they were just straight cannibals. Apparently, if you eat babies, you're, it's, it's a priori, you know, like, or ex, whatever. It's logically deductive that you're also a cannibal, right? So, so what happened? A couple of guys wrote philosophical essays basically correcting that. Justin Martyr is the most famous. But why did the one document written by Justin Martyr have such an effect? It was because tens of thousands of Christians were living out the faith so that their pagan neighbors looked at them and said, there's no way she's eating babies. Right? Like, like I can say Christians aren't anti-gay, that we're not intentionally mean and as destructive and as um, oppressive as possible to gay people. But until neighbors meet Christians where they, it occurs that there's no way that person's like rude and mean and it, there's no way that person discriminates against gay people. There's no way that person's anti-scientific. They're intelligent. I have conversations with them. There's no way that person doesn't care about our environment. There's no way that person fill in the blank in the way these people are saying. They might have some views somehow related to that, but they're not as closed-minded and stupid and narrow as these people are saying they are. It's the, li- the lives are necessary for the rhetoric to break down. 
and for the rhetoric that comes from people like me to take any, any foothold. If churches, if churches make any hay, it's not because they have good preachers. It's because when people visit the church, what the preacher says they see happen in the body of people. When there's congruity between what the person up front is saying and how the people are living and acting towards each other, there's a power that they go, this is real. Right? If the, pre- the preacher can preach whatever he wants, but if, the, if it's not happening, if we're not all doing it, then what happens is they go, it's just, it's just a bunch of phoniness, right? Now, there's two things that are critically important in this that this passage talks about, and I want to go through them. The first is, in the first verses, is in order to remove these hindrances, we have to become a lot more flexible as people. The Christian vocabulary for this is becoming all things to all people, or all things to all men, if you want to say it in the non-gender-specific way, which is not approved in Madison. We have to become, if we want to do this, we have to become a lot more flexible as people. And when I say this, I mean way beyond your worst nightmare. Um, the, when he says this, I mean, think about what Paul says. Let's look at the passage real fast. He says, um, though I'm free and belong to no man, I make myself a slave to everyone. Now, that's an intentional word there, right? Because he uses it at the end, right? Remember? Here he says, I make myself a slave to everyone. At the end of the passage, what does he say? He uses the same word again. What does he say? Anybody? I make my own body my slave. See how he bookends the passage with the use of this word slave twice. He makes himself a slave to others. And then through discipline, he makes his body a slave to his, his spirit, his mind, his will. Does that make sense? Why? Because some things have to be subordinate to other things. And what he's saying is his personal cultural freedom is that subordinate to the good of these other people that he wishes, he wishes to reach. Such that he can say to the Jews, I become just like a Jew. To the Greeks, I become just like people who don't have the law. Now think about what that means. What do you and I spend the vast majority of our day doing? Right? What we spend the vast majority of our day doing is, ex- is executing our personal preferences within our cultural identity. That might not be how you would have said it. Okay? Right? But we've all got a cultural identity. We're Americans, men or women, we're professionals, whatever. You're, you have a cultural identity and then sub, 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 cultural identities, right? And all those eventually come together for you and you have your cultural identity and then you express your personal preferences with that cultural identity in relationship to the resources you've got, right? Is that fair? That's exactly what Paul is saying he's putting aside to reach other people. Do you notice that? Basically, he's saying his whole self. His cultural identity Anything that's not fundamentally essential, he's putting aside, and his personal preferences he's putting aside. So that he can enter into somebody else's cultural story, really, and be the person that person needs for their hindrances to be removed so that they might believe. Now think about this. He is making himself a slave to this, not so that he will reach millions, but so that he might be instrumental in reaching some He's paying every price in reality for the possibility of affecting a few. That is not a simple, I'm going to be nice to people. Right?
Okay, so what this means is that if we want to really remove hindrances from other people knowing Jesus, that we have to authentically enter into other people's cultures and subcultures so that we really get them. So this is, I want you to know, this is the third time I have done this in, in 10 years, okay? So from, from New York to Chicago, and that one didn't take, but then I, as a New Yorker, I moved to, to lower Alabama, Panama City, Florida, which is essentially part of Alabama. That was a little strange, okay? I went from like the rude New York thing to like the Southern thing, and that was a very different culture. And I couldn't just stand up there, I tried it for a little bit, stand up there and be a New Yorker and just yell at people with all kinds of candor and rudeness hoping that they would respond to that. Um, and I did that in New York, and it didn't go so bad. But it, did, it, it did, went over like a ton of bricks in the South, because the South is a very different culture. It's a hospitality-based culture. It's not a candor-based culture. And so in a, if, you, if you act like you're a candor-based person in a hospitality-based, everybody just thinks you're a jerk, right? Because their cultural values and their cultural narrative um, works differently. And so in order for me to really be effective down there, I couldn't just learn a few things about Southern culture and kind of float them and play ball. No, I, in order to be su- successful in ministry in the South, I had to become a Southerner, right? I, I had to own more handguns than you think is reasonable, <laughs> right? Like I learned to bow hunt. I learned to load my own ammunition, Right? I can tell you the muzzle velocity of a 270 with a 22-inch barrel with X number of grains of, you know. I mean, I, like, I got into the world of the southern men I was around. Everything but golf. I couldn't do it. Didn't have the money mainly. Um, because I had to become them. I had to take on every incidental part of their culture onto the essential Christian faith that I had so that I could know what it would look like to really feel what they feel, be who they are, and then communicate the gospel so that what I'm saying is what they're hearing. Does that make sense? And then I moved here, and I thought going to the South was hard. Midwesterners are a whole different animal. You'd think, oh, it's the North. It's just like New York. No, it isn't. No, it isn't. It's nothing. It's, I mean, here in Minnesota are different, you know? I mean, in, in, you know, New York is a candor rudeness-based culture, and I understood that. Like, that made sense to me. And then in the South, I had learned to hold it. This is a, this is different. I haven't even figured it out yet, but I'm trying to figure it out. I'm picking my apples, and I'm being cold in the winter, and I'm doing my, I'm doing the stuff that needs to be done so that I can figure out what it means to be a Midwesterner and to really understand the baseline cultural narratives. And, and, and they're interesting. For example, when I interviewed at a church in Milwaukee before I even knew about High Point a couple years ago, it was a church of about a thousand people. I was coming from a church of about a thousand people, and I was looking at their ministries on Sunday morning, and there were volunteers everywhere. There were tons of volunteers. And they didn't have a volunteer coordinator. It's a church of a thousand people. There's no volunteer coordinator, which is weird in the South. South, you have like 200 people you need a volunteer coordinator. And I'm like, how, how do you do this? And he's like, what do you mean? I was like, well, and, and this man, where I'm from, you can get lots of people to come to church. But you can't get very many people to participate in church. I mean, to, to like go in the children's ministry and to work with youth and to do all this stuff. Like, what do you do? He's like, we just tell people we need volunteers. I was like, oh. <laughs> right? And I was like, well, okay, that doesn't work right from why, why can you do that? And he said, it's Wisconsin. I was like, what do you mean? He said, it's the Midwest. We just do stuff. 
we don't whine about it, expect other people to do it, or just talk about it. We just do it. It's just, I mean, we're, we're just, we're practical people. We've been farmers, we're Norwegians, you know, we're just, we, you know, we're union people, we're blue-collar people, we're, we're just people who do stuff. We just know that it's our job to do it, we just do it. And so when somebody says, hey, you know, your kids are going to be by themselves, if we don't have so many children, Mr. people just sign up. Now, of course, it's not 100%, right? I mean, it's, but when you contrast it with another subculture, it's, it's interesting. And there are things like that about this culture that I'm going to have to learn before I'm really going to be effective. Like I was, well, like I was beginning to be in the South. And so, but here's the thing it also does. It changes you because there are things about the South that I learned that, that I won't change. They're better. They're better. There are things about Southern culture that are better than Midwestern culture and better than New York culture. But I did, I did not leave. But one of the things that the South tried to pull out of me, which I, I tried to cooperate with that, is the rudeness but one of the things I tried really hard to keep was the candor, right? So what am I going to learn here? What am I going to let go of that I learned in the South that the Midwest is going to teach me isn't the best thing, but that I didn't know that from my background in New York, but that I'm going to be able to speak into this culture that I got from the South or from New York that isn't seen here. You see how what's happening is I'm becoming a different sort of person by entering into these cultures. God is doing something in me, not in spite of the fact that I'm, I'm having to enter these other cultures, but because I'm entering these other cultures, which leads me to um, one of the things that I really like about Tim Keller is Tim Keller says in some of his talks, there's two ways to preach the gospel to people. The first is you just tell them the philosophical outline of the gospel. You can say, listen, God is king. You are not. You pretty much stink. And God is right to be not happy with you. He's provided a way for you to be reunited with him completely through the death and resurrection of Jesus. You should believe in and follow Jesus and be part of his plan of redemption in the world. Will you? Right? That's perfectly valid. That's exactly what the gospel is. It's the good news that you can get reconnected and you can be part of what God is doing. But there's another way too, and he said, he said it's this. It's when you retell their own story with Jesus as the proper and happy ending. So you enter into their culture and you take one of their cultural narratives, one of their stories that they believe in so deeply for both moral, personal, and cultural reasons, and you retell that story with Jesus as the proper ending. So, Here's an example, right? Think about Madison. Like, the, the people that we live among who aren't Christians, mostly, one of the, the hearts of their baseline cultural narrative is the fundamental goodness of diversity, right? Um, now, is that a true—is that, is that something in that culture that we should receive, something we should reject, or something we should redeem? I'm going to go with redeem. Because there's something fundamentally true about it, right? The idea that if you could get people to fundamentally see each other as part of the same family, bring all of their different experiences together and their expertise together in such a way as there's a fundamental cross-enrichment of each other, you could get a way in which you could see that the things in your particular subculture that are wrong, that really aren't good— Another culture could speak into that that can actually see it, and vice versa, such that you take the best that comes out of different cultures, people can retain whatever they want, and everybody gets stronger and better together. The idea behind um, diversity and multiculturalism is, is a good narrative. The problem is, we can't do it. We can't make it work. It's, it's or that we can't refine. It's never going to happen, and it doesn't happen. But think about what this passage says. There's one thing that is essential to who you are, that you belong to Jesus, and he, has, he, is, he is working to redeem you in all of humanity through the cross and the gospel. 
He is remaking you into what is fundamentally human. But everything that's incidental about your culture is malleable, such that you can be called to out of love, not because you're told to do it, because you have to do it, because that's what we should do with admissions, but because you want to do it. You willingly and gladly lay aside your cultural particularities so that you can enter into another culture because of the desire to bring just one thing, not your culture imperialistically, but to bring the one thing, the gospel, into a culture that you are authentically and truly entering into. Not learning a couple things about and acting like you like it or clapping out of white guilt, but actually entering into because you have to know what they really think, how they really feel, who they really are, what their real cultural narrative is, what their real past experience is, so that when you share the gospel, what they hear is what you're saying. But all the incidentals of what you're going into belong to them. You see? So what happens is, is it, is a, it is a multicultural diversity factory. The gospel is the only thing that can create it. It has the ability to throw us out of love into the process of engaging and entering in other cultures, but yet it still has the thing necessary to unite and weave the fabric of them because Jesus is still the center. So it has the ability to create the thing the culture who doesn't believe right here really wants but can't create. But it allows us to engage in them in a way because there are ways in which they're doing it that we are not. So it has the ability to offend our own self-righteousness. Because what should happen to you and I when we go out, out of the church into a secular context, and we see multiculturalism happening better than it's happening here? How should we feel about that? We should feel like the glory of God is being concealed. Because something that belongs to the gospel and belongs to the king looks like it belongs to something else. Because some people are achieving... And this may sound, this may be offensive, are actually achieving out of a kind of idolatry what we should be achieving easily through a kind of worship. That should deeply, deeply sadden us and teach us that we don't believe the gospel like we think we do and that we're not Christians because we're better. Because in that particular area, morally, they're better. And that ought to humble us. Now, but think about, think about the good of that. Right? What would that do to us? It could make us humbler. It could make us more outgoing outside the church walls. But it could, it, also, it doesn't need to change anything we believe about the gospel. You see? So we can grow tremendously and still fulfill a cultural narrative of the watching world in such a way that they can believe. I'm going to come back to why that works at the end. But I think there's one more thing we have to say about how we live this out. And that is, you, can, you, you need to not go out and do this by leaving your backbone at home. There are some things that the loving thing is confrontation, other things where the loving thing is cultural entrance. There are some things that if you back down on them, you're actually taking away a hindrance now to put up a bigger one later. It's short-term thinking, and it's not helpful. And usually when we do that, it's because we don't, we don't want to say what we're supposed to say. Adam and I were having this discussion about a friend of his. They were having a talk at a party, and he said, I, you know, someday I think I might come back to church, but I just, I just don't feel like right now I can worship a God who, like, punishes people eternally in hell. That's that, like, vindictive. And we, we talked about whether or not it was ethical to encourage that person to believe in the, what we believe is the heretical doctrine of annihilation, that God punishes every person in hell to the extent to which they deserve it, and then they cease to exist. And, and eternal life is just, it's what you get if you believe in Jesus, you get eternal life. 
Um, but we both believe that's false, that that's not what the Bible ultimately teaches, but there's some Christians who think that. And see how you could win a short-term victory that way? You could back down on the doctrine of hell and say, well, you know, there's some Christians who believe this. It's called annihilation, blah, 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 to try to get the guy back to church, right? Should you do that? You see, there's, that's difficult. It's a difficult question. I think the answer is probably no. Because the, the obstacle I pull out of the way now, there's a glory of God issue that's going to come up later. And so, but there's other things that it's really good to back down on. Like that the Packers are the greatest football team ever in the history of the world and the future of the world, you know? Now, I believe that, but am I gonna, am I gonna, am I gonna preach that, you know, in Nashville? You know, I don't know. I'll just keep my mouth shut about that, right? I mean, there's, there's things we gotta pull back on, right? And the most difficult area for this really is politics. If you have certain political convictions that certain things aren't moral, moral equivalents between the two parties, at what point do you back down on being political in order for people to hear the gospel because you want to show that their stereotype that you're in the bag for one party or the other isn't true, right? Right? Most people think that Christians are really political, particularly in Madison, that conservative Republican people are so political. So you can pull back and act apolitical, but at what point are you really just being soft, Right? That's, I think that's one of the hardest ones. Public policy is always the hardest, I think. But listen, you've got to do it in a way that you still have a backbone. That's what I'm saying. You've got to be like a human, soft on the outside, but if they push too hard, there's bone there on the things you, that are essential. But you've got to have the soft skin on the outside. You don't want to be a crab. <laughs> you don't want to be a crab or a slug. Slug, soft on the outside, no bone on the inside. A crab, all hard on the outside, gooey on the inside. There's nothing really there once you get through it. But a human is soft on the outside, hard on the inside. There's structure there, but it's soft to the touch. That's what we want, right? Okay, quickly the other thing since there's no time left for it. The second part of the chapter is, talks about embracing discipline. Embracing discipline. And pro probably you already got the, the idea that um, being more flexible or becoming all things to all people actually is going to require an enormous amount of discipline because you're making what you are 24 hours a day a subordinate slave to the good of others. And you can't ever do that either for others and you can't even really follow, you can't even be that for yourself without embracing discipline. And that's, here's one of the areas where we actually have to speak against the mainline cultural narrative that we live in. The mainline cultural narrative that we live in, and broadly in America, is that by permitting things, people find who they really are. By allowing people to do what they want to do, that's how, let, let people wander. That's how they will find themselves. The Christian gospel has always said the opposite of that. That if you, if you let yourself wander, you will obey your stomach. You will, you'll become more an animal and less a rational animal. You'll, be, you'll, you'll go the way of your impulses and your hormones. That's what will ultimately happen. You'll obey your stomach. You'll stop every time you walk by the pantry. And it's only by discipline. So Paul uses the word slave again, right? He says, he says not I make myself a slave to others. He says, I make my body my slave, right? There's a sense in which we're completely embodied people and our bodies are part of who we are. And in some ways, our bodies are who we are. But there's another way in which you have to constantly be at war with your own body. I.e., not just your physical body, but the, all the impulses and all the, all the you that's there. You're, you're at war with it. You have to make it your slave. And to not do so 
is to be a silly kind of optimist. This last week when um, I got to go see Menohar James, remember he spoke here in February? Menohar, Lex and I stayed overnight with him at Asbury Seminary and got to hear about some of the ministry he'd been doing in India this summer. But at Asbury, there's a statue of John Wesley that's life-size, and he's only about this tall, which is, I think, hilarious. But, you know, 18th century nutrition, right? Um, But right next to the statue, there's a plaque that has a very famous quote from Wesley. And it's a great quote to have at a Wesleyan seminary, because this is what it says. I am not afraid that the people called Methodists should ever cease to exist either in Europe or America. But I am afraid lest they should only exist as a dead sect, having the form of religion without the power. And this undoubtedly will be the case unless they hold fast to both the doctrine, spirit, and the discipline with which they first set out. He says both, but doctrine and spirit are the same for him. And discipline. He he said, listen, you know, we gave him orthodox doctrine. We gave him spiritual piety. Jesus is the most important thing to me. But without discipline, they're not going to get anywhere. Do you know that 85% of Americans— say that Christian spirituality is important or very important to them. Right? In some sense, they have the doctrine. They believe that Jesus died for the sins. And in some sense, they have—they believe they have the heartfelt piety. But they don't have any discipline. Because you can just plainly see in culture, there's no execution of any of that belief. Right? We do not exist in a culture that, that has 85% devout, really gospel-believing Christians, right? And one, of the, and, and, and one of the things I like about this passage is that Paul gives two really good, very evocative examples of this. So look at—this sounds competitive, but track it here. Do you not know that in a race, all the runners run— but only one gets the prize. Run in such a way as to get the prize. That sounds kind of like church is competitive, right? So I'm going to be holier than you, and we're going to fight. And, but that's not—just track it here. It says, everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. You see, that's—that verse 25 is the point of this. That it, and what he's saying is this. He's not saying you've got to beat me and I've got to beat you, spiritually. What he's saying is, is he's saying there is a huge difference between a jogger and a runner, right? You, you need the word jog in the Christian vocabulary for those people who, like, find something fashionable to wear and they, stra- and they just kind of clear their head, you know, and listen to podcasts or whatever. Like, those are joggers, okay? That is not the same thing as a runner. A runner is actually training to do something. They're going to run a marathon. They're going to beat some other people. They're going to compete. They're going to be in the game. No, if you jog and then you think you're going to run some marathon, you're crazy, Right? It's ridiculous. I mean, why does the American Olympic track team have doctors? Right? It's because jogging keeps the doctor away. Running, you need a doctor. Because it's a sport. You can actually get hurt, even if you're not an insufferable klutz, right? Because it's a thing. And what he's saying is, he's saying, look, there's two different kinds of running. There is people who run to train to win a race. And even if you don't win it, you're in it to win it. You're, I mean, you're running the race. You are racing. He's like, you need, to, you need to figure out if you are a racer or if you are a jogger. And if you are a jogger, you're not in it, right? And he uses these two really evocative things. One is um, somebody running aimlessly. I mean, think about that. That's worse than a jogger. That's like me inviting people over the house. Hey, we're all going to go jogging, right? And then we, I get in the cul-de-sac, and I never leave the cul-de-sac. I'm like— Who's got water? 
You know, it's like that kid, right? It's like you, you know, it's, you're not going anywhere. I mean, it's just, you're, you're running in circles. It's, it's, that's what it means, running aimlessly. And you see what he's saying is, is he's saying, is, is that your spiritual life? It's very possible. If, if you don't know what you're running after, if you don't know what the goal is, if you don't know how freedom and love come together under the gospel to create the maximally loving life in which we remove, we don't put any more hindrances in front of the gospel, and we remove as many as we can for the good of as many people as possible, such that we make ourselves their slave and we make our body our slave. If you don't get that, and if you're not running after that, then you're just gonna, you're not running anywhere. There's no finish line. There's no course. Where do you start? Where do you stop? What are you doing? Are you just trying to get your heart rate to 52? I want to get that fat burning zone. You know? That, what he's saying is, we've got to know the difference and we've got to embrace a discipline that's the discipline of a racer. I mean, and the other example is even sillier, right? I mean, he's airboxing, Right? He's like, he's like, you know, I mean, he's like beating the air. I mean, who, who doesn't look good fighting the air? You know, you're like, uh, come on, come on. Uh. Right? I mean, who's terrified, right? <laughs> but uh, Adam was speaking at this youth thing when he was interning here. He got, he flew out to California and spoke at this youth group. And um, one of the, one of the, and so the guys and girls are staying in different dorms, and one of the guys brought two pairs of boxing gloves, like in his bag. And in the infinite wisdom of the youth pastor, he thought, yeah, let's have some boxing matches, right? So, so they all get together, you know, and they're like, they're all like tough, and they're like, mm, I'm gonna get you, I'm gonna punch you right there, blah, blah, blah. And then, but he goes, first punch, no matter where it landed. This guy turned to this guy. <laughs> like, with gloves, not hard. Punched by another person who had no training, right? Just hit on the arm. You're like, oh, oh, right? And, and, and it's actually worse than this because I don't know if you've ever punched anything, but I, I, when I was in Florida, I was like, you know, I had kind of the tension from being a pastor. People are idiots, right? And so I'm going to get, I'm going to get a punching bag and I'm going to get like big arms and everything, right? And I'm, so I get, I go to like sports store, I get like the 80 pound bag, right? I'm not the 51, but I'm going to get, and so I get the gloves and I'm like, boom, 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 boom. And the bag's like going like this. And, and then all of a sudden, I just feel pain up both my arms. I'm like, ow! And, I, and they're like, yeah, you have to know how to hit stuff. And it, like the guy I was passionate with actually worked out in a gym at one point, like boxing. And he's like, yeah, you have to do that. I didn't even know how to hit something, right? And I mean, hitting's as bad as getting hit, right? And he's like, anybody can airbox, right? But think about it. Not embracing the kind of discipline necessary as to what he's talking about here is kind of like every morning you get out of the shower and airbox yourself dry in front of the mirror and think that you are going to be an Olympic contender for the gold medal in the heavyweight boxing division. It's, it's logically tantamount to that. And it's, it's the, I, the whole idea here isn't that it's meant to be mean. It's meant to be realistic. Our sinful nature and our desire to be fully indulgent with ourselves is always leading us away from reality because reality requires discipline. And so the reason he uses these very evocative pictures is to wake us the heck up. The idea that we can get through life as a Christian 
without making our bodies our slaves. Just, it's not reasonable. It's not true. It's not biblical. And when we think about it in practical, illustrative terms, it's really silly. Let me just end with something real quick. And that is, um, if you're, you know, if you're not already sort of committed to the Christian paradigm, you might think, if you've heard my last couple of sermons or just this one, you might think, you know, Nick, it's well and good to say that Christianity um, offers an enormous amount of freedom to people. I said that a few weeks ago. There's an enormous amount of freedom. He said, but, you, but what you're basically arguing is the kind of love you're saying the gospel creates in people's hearts essentially makes you a slave. I mean, Paul literally says it twice. Like, I make myself a slave to everyone, and I make my body slave to me to accomplish what I'm trying to accomplish. So isn't this just a sham, then? You say that it's all—it's love-based, it's voluntary, it's grace, blah, blah, blah. But isn't it just another way of just doing religion? Isn't it just another way to try to get people in line by fearing God? Isn't it—isn't it a sham that you just—you're defining and you're using the word love to really be as legalistic as every other religious idea on the face of the earth, Right? A good, I think that'd be a good question. It was my question, right? I think, I think the answer is no for three reasons, okay? The first is, is that the sacrifice and discipline here are chosen. There's nobody trying to make you do it. And in lots of ways, if you look at this, if, at this larger passage, your salvation isn't contingent on it. The kind of level of voluntary, outgoing self-sacrifice Paul is talking about here is not salvation contingent. What he's saying is his salvation, that what God is doing in him is motivating this. But he's not saying if you don't do this just like him, you're going to hell. He's not saying that. You cannot go this far and be saved. I believe that. Um, And so therefore, what is chosen here is voluntary. If you don't understand that, you've got to listen to my last sermon and it's online. The second is, he's not saying you've got to run the race. He's just saying if you run the race, you've got to be realistic about what it takes. You see what he's saying? He's saying, listen, if you're a Christian and you're in the race, you've got to run it like you're going to run a race. Don't run aimlessly and then get in the race. You're in or you're out. Either jog and just enjoy jogging or run the race. But if you run the race, you're running for the finish line and you're running to win. And the third is this, and it's a little complicated, and I'm not sure I can pull this off in a couple of minutes. But, um, it's worked out in letter 18 in the screw tape letters where this fake master demon is writing under demon. He says this. He says, the whole Christian religion is based on the preposterous idea of love, which is that your good is my good and my good is your good. And he said, that is preposterous. Of course, this is a demon talking. He says, all of reality is based on the idea that my good is my good and your good is your good. And to be is to be in competition. And therefore, if I'm expanding, you are contracting. If I'm eating, you're being devoured. What is good for me is good for me and what is good for you is good for you. And he said, the whole problem with God is he tries to, he tries to do 50 things at once that can't be done. He denies the very nature of reality. And that's absolutely true. The premise of the gospel is that when you become a slave, you become free. And that the good you attempt to create for the other person by becoming their slave and entering into their context and being who they need to be and remove the hindrances, that is what's best for you. 
and what's best for them, for them, and what's best for the revelation of the glory of God. To which the, the staunch Republican says, that sounds like free markets. I like that. It's 50 times better than free markets. Okay? I like buying Tootsie Rolls as much as the next person. But it's 100 times better because a free market is just two people saying, I'm, we're, neither of us are getting ripped off. We're both adding a little bit to each other's life. What this is saying is if this person brings 50 to the table and this person brings 50 to the table, they both get 100. That's what love creates. It means what this person does is entirely in the good of this person and benefits this person, and that entirely benefits this person. Love entirely benefits when it's love, all parties involved. Therefore, making yourself a slave benefits you to the—you're your own slave. It's like you're the slave and the master. Everything you do in your own self-given slavery is for your own good and paid to yourself as well as the other person. It doubles its worth and reveals the glory of God, which adds worth to everyone. That's why Christian, spiritual, self-voluntarily accepted personal slavery— is the greatest freedom the human race has ever known. And it will take a little while to work that out in your noodle. And I know for some of us, our plausibility structures are very much against it. And it's very hard for you to believe that. And I just encourage you to come back next week and the week after and see if over time it works out. But what you need to know is, is that the thing, one of the things that I love the most about God is he is always giving back with his left hand what he's taking away with his right Everything God takes away and goes, I'm taking this, and you need to deal with that. He's secretly giving back with his, right, his other hand. Because he was first loving and made himself a slave to demonstrate how he does it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for um, the truth of the fact that we are called to be lovers of all people and that the maximally loving life is one that not only doesn't create new hindrances but gives itself to remove hindrances from others so that they can see not how great we are but that they can see everything that's good about you and that the, that, that would radiate in a way they could see it all across the lives of people and that they would enjoy it, that they would believe it, that they would follow it and that we would be drawn to them, they would be drawn to us, we all would be drawn to you, and that a great multiplication would happen in terms of what we all receive. Because love is better than any other exchange the human race has ever created or the pit of hell have, has ever devised. We pray that you'd make us a people who become much more flexible in our desire to become all things to all people, authentically entering in other people's places, and also people who embrace discipline wholeheartedly so that we're not like people beating the air. We pray that you would help us to win the race together so that we could fulfill the verse in verse 23 that I do all this for the sake of the gospel that I may share in its blessings. Amen.